Today's guest is Mick Smith. He is the author of Burning America in the Best Interest of the Children. Also, he has his own podcast. He is the doctor of digital. He unlocks potential by leveraging digital marketing of the internet for business and bringing more light in regards to why he chose to write Burning America. Please give a warm welcome to ever blessed Mick Smith. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to reach out to me. I think this is a universal problem. It's an American problem. And I'll go back to where I first started coming across issues like this. And I tell people, this is where I think people started to notice this. There's a song way back when, way before you were born called Memphis. And it was written by Chuck Berry. He wrote this in 1959. Wasn't a hit until 1963. And Johnny Rivers also made a hit out of it in 1964. But it's very interesting lyrics because he gets a call from Memphis, Tennessee, and he gets the number because his uncle wrote it on the wall. And you listen to the lyrics of the song, and what it ends up saying is that there's only one person who would be calling me from Memphis, Tennessee, and that's Marie, who's only six years old. And the only reason he knows that is because he says her mother and I did not agree. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because what happened and how come he doesn't have the number to his six-year-old daughter? Well, because I think this is what has affected his family or someone that he knew. And this has continued on that time and, and since then. So I think something that had originally been in certain communities has now spread all over the country. And that's why I think my novel is America Burning because it's everybody here and we're all in this together. You, you might not believe it, but I was actually from Newark, New Jersey. And as many people would say about Newark, it's a good place to be from. <laughs> in other words, get out. And mm -hmm. that's where I grew up. And I was in Eastern seaboard. So that meant a lot of time in urban centers like Wilmington, Delaware, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I taught in the inner city for 10 years. And when my dad got a promotion, we went out to another place. And this was, we moved up in the world. It's another town that a lot of people have heard of, and that's Compton, California. So we got to move up in the world. Some <laughs> would question whether that's really moving up, but in terms of background, that's why I really don't label people because you never know where they're from. And I wouldn't necessarily look like a guy that's from Newark and Compton, California, but here I am. So I'm very much aware of the issues in the community and what people, and if it helps anybody, I'm all for it. And I think what we had done when we originally talked, I said, you know, it is a novel, so I'm writing it because I'm trying to be entertaining, but also then try to make people aware of a very serious situation in the country. But all the stuff that is so strange and bizarre and wild and doesn't sound like it could possibly happen, trust me, it all happened. It's mm -hmm. all real. So it's got that sort of grittiness and this can't possibly be true aspect to it. But yeah, it's, it's happened. And over the years, the reason I kind of sat on it, actually, because this novel, I did really be describing events that happened between 1998 and 2001. And I took about two and a half years to write it and sat on it. But then I've come across all kinds of people throughout the years who have said, oh, I know somebody that that's happened to, or that was 
somebody I knew or somebody in my family. And lo and behold, this is actually my best buddy also. Same exact thing happened. Wife took off with their child and 3,000 miles away, same thing that happened to me. So I said, you know, this kind of convinces me that, look, this is not, you know, this little small thing that happens every once in a while. No, it's far too common and it's really destroying families and it's really hurting people. And so this is why I said it's, it's um, the subtitle of the novel is in the best interest of the children, question mark, because this is what you hear all the time. They're doing things in the best interest of the children, but no, they're not. They're really not. And it's got an entire corrupt system, which is perpetuating this harm that it's doing on families and children. It's just wrong. It should just stop. Mm -hmm. So um, without, I guess, getting into detail, because just reviewing some of your previous podcasts as you, I guess you were a guest on other person's podcasts, as well as you all have your own podcast, you identify, you know, kind of the background of your novel and that it is based on your personal life experience uh, without, I guess, giving the listeners too much of information to spoil your novel. Um, is there something that you could share? I can give you the floor to talk about it more maybe just to identify that this is a across the board concern or matter that we need to take heed of because it, it affects all facets, all nationalities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is, uh, like I said, it's of concern to everybody. So, I mean, yeah, definitely want to be a safe space. And the thing is, having been uh, teaching in inner city and a professor, I said, you know, I have students come up to me and tell me that this is what's going on in their families. And Usually they take me aside and I'd say, well, this is what's actually happened. You know, they don't turn in an assignment and I go, well, here's what happened. And I go, yeah, I got it. <laughs> you know, I understand. So in my case, you know, I'm living this normal, ordinary existence that I think everything is peachy keen or at least trying to because you're trying to build a family and building a life. But basically what happened is I pulled up the house one day and it's the house was stripped, you know, everything was gone. Everything was val valuable was gone. So I go rushing to the door because I had always been taking care of the child. Her daughter was five at the time. And when she was younger, I was actually the primary caregiver, which was an unusual situation for both a father and a man to have. But that's actually what happened because my wife had been working double shifts. And so she just frankly wasn't home a lot because of her work schedule. So I said, fine, you know, I'll take care of the child, take care of the baby. And that's what I did. But then she also did things where she took off with the kid from time to time. And they have to try to find her where she was, who she was with, or what family, where she was, because I wouldn't know any of those things. But this was a different day because everything was gone. And so I thought, okay, well, it's just, you know, physical things, it's monetary things, financial things that can be replaced but you can't replace a child. It's that's impossible. And when uh, then I tried the bank accounts, checked on the bank accounts, all the money is gone. I had literally $5 and 85 cents in my pocket. That was it. And that's all I had. So I said, well, number one problem, got to get the child home. So started calling around, called the school. No, another family had picked her up called that family. They weren't home. So I have to do something. 
not knowing where the child is. I started driving around looking for a police officer thinking, well, maybe uh, the cops would be able to help me track down my child. Guy says, no, it can't really help you. Has the child been gone for more than 48 hours? No. Who do you think the child is with? Well, I think she's with the mother. Well, then she's not an immediate danger so far as you can tell. I go, well, that's true. So I said she had been taken to another family's house. I'm calling them the Johnsons. Can you call them? Cop calls the Johnson family. And over the cop radio, they said, where is this child? And over the police radio, I heard California. I'm living in Pennsylvania. So I find out over a police radio that my child is 3,000 miles away. I got a real problem on my hands. I have no money. Child is gone. Police can't help. I go back to the house, finding whatever I could find. And I actually found out that there was a receipt for mom having her labia pierced the 10 days before. So I said, it seems to me there's something wrong here, that this is not something that's ordinary. This seems to be an extraordinary kind of situation. So I thought, you know, if I had taken off with a child and I had pierced my private parts, probably I would have had a different reaction from the police officer. But be that as it may, that's not what happened. So I did what a lot of people did. I got an attorney. I said, well, how do I get the child back into the state? He filed a writ of habeas corpus to get the child back into the state, which had happened. We had a court date three days later. And he says, well, do you know? He named the person a neighbor down the street. I said, yeah, I know that person. Well, apparently... She's been living there for three days, but I didn't know it. Show up at the court. The child is back in the state. I said, great. You know, we're all set now. I'm in the home. Take the child back to school. The attorney says to me, oh, no. The child goes back to the mom. I go, wait a minute. She's not coming home? Oh, no. Get ready. You're in it for family court now. So that's what happened. So for the next three and a half years, I had to try to find my daughter, whoever she was with for the next three and a half years. The same neighbor would have the child from time to time as well, too. So mom would pick up the child when child was home, get in the car. Mom drives down the street, three doors down. Child gets out of the car, goes into that house. So I could see my child. She's down the street, but she might as well have been 3,000 miles away because I still couldn't get her. Striving to be the sane person here and the reliable person and the person who had enough sense to stay in the home and keep the stability for the child proved to be absolutely impossible for court system to see. And in fact, this is why I say it's a corrupt system because everybody's getting money. You have to go before psychiatrists, which I did twice. In the psychiatrist, the second one, the psychiatrist asked the child to draw a picture of her family, which she did. And that I'm gonna put actually on the cover of the novel. And it's a very interesting picture because 
a child drew a picture of the family and how she sees it. And guess who's holding the baby? Me. When the psychiatrist wrote that up, he wrote that up as the father is too attached to the child. I go, how do you figure? I wasn't even there. The child was just being honest. She was asked to draw a picture of her family. She did. That's how she saw it. But instead of honoring what the child was actually trying to get across, he blamed me and said I was at fault. In another incident, mom gets an apartment close by. Daughter comes home and she tells me the one time she said she saw mom in bed with another man having sexual relations. I go back to the court and I said, well, is it possible that the child could return home? I don't think it's a good idea that she sees things like this. Attorney at that time said, you really need to move on because mom has improved her life. She's moved on and found another boyfriend. Hold on a second, like you're missing the point. <laughs> I really didn't think a six or seven year old child should see adults having sexual relations. That was my point. So a number of these incidents, like I said, this is what goes on. And this is unfortunately the kind of system that these kids are being caught in and being trapped into a system which is very corrupt. And when I would have incidents that would arise asking help of counselors, masters, lawyers, attorneys. No one would assist. Child had several injuries. One time I had a ambulance come to a house that was next to mine and adjacent in terms of backyards. It was an elderly family. So I thought, okay, one of these older people might have been rushed to the hospital ambulances, what have you. About two days later, I get a call from mom. Child has been in an accident, come down to the hospital, which I did. Turns out she had burnt fingers, supposedly because they were using the iron and the iron seared a couple of the fingers. So that's kind of unusual. Both of these individuals, mom and the child are right-handed and it was on their right hand. So if you're right-handed, don't you think the burns would have been on the left hand? At that time, the pediatrician kind of slipped out, said, well, how's the daughter's breathing going? I'm looking at, what do you mean? What breathing? What breathing incident? Well, turns out mom supposedly was on vacation. She was actually at this house. The ambulance that I saw was not for this elderly person, it was for our daughter. The only way I found out there was a breathing incident at all was because I had seen the ambulance and the pediatrician had just accidentally mentioned this was another incident. So things like this are going on. Like I said, I could never make this up. These are all things that actually happen, but I try to write it in, a certain, in terms of a novel to say, you know, there are people that are experiencing things like this and going through this and really to try to resolve it. And in terms of saying, you know, first of all, there is a huge problem in this country 
And then secondly, if a person is in this situation and there isn't some factor which would make them leave the home, try to work it out. So I'm going to urge people to have a little bit more patience and a little bit more peace and a little bit more love and try not to put a child in this really horrible situation. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, that just, it hits on a lot of things that I have experienced personally um, as a child and as a parent myself. Yeah, the system is completely broken when it comes to finding the proper placement for children, suitable, healthy environment. It's, um, it's really sad that the, this legal system is the way it is. And um, it kind of bleeds into a lot of other sections of government-owned um, facilities and institutions, like even the, the, uh, the jail system you know, the penitentiary system, the local authorities, the dealing with law enforcement. I mean, even the government offices in other situations when, when a person needs aid as a family who is needing help. It's just so backwards how America, like you said, I, and I agree with you that it is a burning America. And like, what is really the interest of a child? Is it really the interest of a child or is it interest of uh, filling your pockets? So it's just... It's amazing. It just floors me on that. It, it's a never ending. Like, how are we able to come to an understanding that this is broken? I mean, we've said it. A lot of people and a lot of voices have been meant, have been shouting for some justice and at least some to remedy this and fix this system. But who is the one that we need to literally contact to get the ball rolling, to get a little fire under someone's backside to get this to be corrected? That's the question. Yeah, yeah. and I think it comes out to awareness. So, I mean, if there is something in a home that would have a person flee, I completely understand. You know, if there's physical abuse, chemical abuse, alcohol abuse, I mean, all those are valid reasons. But the odd situation in this particular instance is that none of that was present and I'm in the home. And so trying to get across to a system that, well, wait a minute, I'm the stable person here. I didn't leave. Ordinarily, you know, the cliche is if the guy finds the girlfriend and goes running off and doesn't care about the kids, I go, well, that didn't happen here. I mean, I was there the whole time. So why can't the child return to the only home she's ever known? I'm trying to point out that I'm the stable one in this relationship here. And if mom wants to leave, I understand. Fine. That's okay. But for a person like myself, there was no factor which drove her. She just left. She changed her mind or did what wanted to, or wanted to go on the road for a while. All is fine. But why disrupt the child's life, which I could never understand and could never get across. And that's what's so frustrating. It's like, you know, you're running into a system that you're throwing children at their mercy. And there is a cliche that the children are our future, but it's like, well, yeah, if that's true, well, then why does this system abuse these kids? The only way for a child to grow up in as much as they possibly can is 
to have a positive environment for them and the best that can be done, which means let them benefit from both parties. And a lot of times, you know, mom and dad are clashing with each other. And unfortunately, the child becomes the football. This is what happened in my situation. You know, my wife figured out that the one thing I wanted once I said, who cares about the bank account? Who cares about the house? Who cares about any of this? I just care about the child. That was my number one priority. And I would never give her up ever. I would never sign off on her. I would continue to fight for her. You know, that's what a parent does. And it's from within. In other words, well, the way I say it's again, it's a cliche is watch out for the big bad wolf and don't talk to strangers. And you hear this all the time, but what happens if the person you have to really be most afraid of is the person from within? They know all your weaknesses. They know all your liabilities. They know your fears, your hopes, your dreams. And those are the ones that can do the most damage to you. It's not necessarily the stranger. It's the one who's from within. And for a system to be set up to keep the child from a positive environment is really what's wrong. So I think it's just awareness. And I think that's what I said, you know, the novel to me, just it's to try, first of all, just to get people aware of it. And then secondly, perhaps there's legislation or people would start to say, look, you've really got to be able to advocate for the children. And that's why I said the subtitle is in the best interest of the children with a question mark, because you hear this all the time and nobody does that. I mean, no one. No one has the best interest of the child at at stake. It's all the system which perpetuates whoever is making money from it. And that's the courts, the attorneys, the judges, what have you. Mm -hmm. And I think it also has to do with, because I, as I understood the laws well uh, in Wisconsin at the time that I was going through court, there's a lot of favor um, leaning more towards the maternal side of custody battles, no matter the circumstance, in a sense. Um, Men do not have that same type of equality, same type of, they have pretty much less than a foot to stand stand on in the court system when it deals with custodial court system. And that's sad because we all should have at least a a proper playing field when we're talking about our children and the safety and well-being of their um, their environment and their educational and um, their future. And you're spot on when you say that, you know, children are our future, but we're literally burned down before it even is their turn to take the stick in the rally race. So, yeah, that's one of the things that I also noticed as well. There's no equality. There's, there's a lot of leniency when it comes to the mother, no matter what type of circumstances that is going on. I mean, she could be the worst of the worst um, in a drug house, you know, doing drugs, you know, selling her body for her addiction. I mean, she could have done the worst things to her own children. And for some reason, it leans towards that favor. And it just, it blows my mind on how they like, I think they like pick out of a box on whether or not this is true or not, and who should go to what where the child should go to and whom. Um, but that's, it's just, it's like a Russian relay kind of a game on our children's future. And uh, it's, it's heartbreaking. It, it is. And I said, you know, when it came down to, of course, you go through a certain 
amount of months. And first of all, as I said, you know, well, the bank accounts was stripped, so I had no assets. But then several months go by and they say to you, they come to you and they say, oh, okay, well, now you owe three or four or six months of custody <laughs> payments. I go, well, wait a minute. She surely took everything, first of all. I'm trying to rebuild from that $5.85 that I was left with. So, you know, I have to eat, but it doesn't really matter. Then by that time, after several months go by, then they start telling you, okay, you owe like $10,000, $12,000. Like, where do you think I'm getting that from? You know, sure he took that. Sure he took what I would have had or I just wrote a check. And then I'd ask, well, what happens to the money? There's no accountability whatsoever. So I asked my attorney at one time, I said, so you mean to tell me I'm giving her this money and it literally could be going up her nose? And the attorney said, yes. I go, well, well wait a minute. Then, then it's not really child support then. It's, you know, it's for somebody or whatever she wants to spend it on. When I did the research for this novel too, at the time, it said 94% of mothers win custody in a custody battle. So in other words, you do run into men who did have custody of their children, but those are non-combative situations. Now the, the mother had enough sense to say for whatever reason, the father was qualified, he can have custody. But if it's a custody battle, moms win 94%. It's like, oh, well, you mean to tell me that only 6% of the father's in a contested situation or qualified, if it was an intact family and both were in the home, it would be closer to like 50-50, wouldn't it? Why is it that 94% of mothers win and only 6% of the fathers are qualified? And in my particular situation, I said, well, look at the difference. I'm an unusual situation. I get it. But I was the primary caregiver for a child when she was under the age of five just because of our family situation. Isn't it easy to see how is the caregiver? No, nope, doesn't really matter. So if you're looking at what is the best interest of the child and the picture that she's drawing, she was trying to get across when she's being asked, well, where do you find stability? Where would you find your home? All she was to explain it. That wasn't the, what the court wanted to hear. The psychiatrist who had all the credentials, he completely dismissed that. Well, why? Why would you do that? You know, because it's a system which is set up, but where in the 19th century, it was actually against mothers because about 90% of the time in the 19th century, a father would win custody. But the thinking was different then because the fathers and the men were the ones who were generally working outside the home so the thinking was, well, they have the money, so we're going to automatically give the kids to the father. In my mom's situation, she actually was abandoned by her mother when she was four years old. She went to live with my grandfather and my great aunt, but that's typical of how things used to be. Then it was a complete reversal, like say in the 1970s or so. And there were attorneys then who were saying, well, it's unfair to women. So now it's biased towards the women. And in the novel, I actually explained, I had two different attorneys, the first one who was worthless. And the second one as a strategy actually went for the top feminist attorney in my area. 
it still didn't matter. She couldn't get anything more than what I did before. And as each time you do this, of course, each time you go to court, you realize it's like ka-ching, ka-ching. You're paying thousands and thousands of dollars without anything really towards helping a child whatsoever. It's just a, it's a broken system and it supports the people who are making money from this broken system. You are spot on in regards to that. And that's something that needs to be remedied in some way. I mean, the process has already been, this system has been consistent since for 50 years or so far. It's like, how are we able to put the balancing on each, the balancing scales for each parent to have the right, you know, 50-50, like you mentioned, that should be something that should be a given in our system. Now, have you got involved in speaking with higher uppers who would be involved in making that initiative or, or calling the some type of creating some type of legislature or changes of the stature of how the system works? Or what are you doing in the back end? Knowing that you know the disease, do you possibly know the possible cure that's coming, uh, that you might be involved in creating the cure? That's what I would hope to do. I think that's like the next step. And I would like to try to get the sort of knowledge out there first through the novel. That was my idea to get attention to it and then go to state legislatures and start to say, look, if we're really interested in the children, if we really are interested in what is their best interest, this is an issue that should be addressed and perhaps through legislation because that's the next step. And, you know, going back to kind of like my situation, I always let the cat out of the bag type of thing. But in my situation, late in the game, I said this was about a three-year battle. This actually got to be so ridiculous that my wife kept calling the police on me for one reason or another. Judges got tired of it. And mom had some health issues and serious health issues, not surprisingly, given the background that I've indicated, because I think mentally she was struggling with something. She was physically incapacitated. And instead of the judge allowing the child to come home, he says, child goes to the neighbor. I said to myself, well, wait a minute, I'm the one who has been providing money for the child. I went through two psychological evaluations. And now all of a sudden, instead of the child not even going to a family, a blood relative, either mom or dad's family, the neighbor walks off with the child. How, how does this make any sense whatsoever? And it was only because the neighbor and the mom were very close. And the judge just said, goes to the neighbor. Uh, it's like, it's mind boggling mind-boggling how is this even possible that this could be seen as a fair and just resolution of a conflict so point being speaking to legislatures this is the kind of thing i want to get across how is it possible that a judge would award a non-blood relative of either a mother or a father why would a child be given to somebody it's like giving the child to a complete stranger it's absolutely wrong and it's got to be addressed and it should be changed. I'm currently going through that as we speak. Uh, I went to court for my grandchildren and 
Texas is pretty strong in the rights of grand uh, parental rights and laws here in Texas. So I do have two grandchildren and I went to court to get them because it was just a, that's a story within itself. But I wanted to share this with you because I am completely on board with the aggravation of how the system treats children. She, these children are my, they're my grandchildren. I am a grandmother. I, and under the circumstances, I gone through the process of what my attorney identified that I needed to go into classes for a fostering license to kind of look, um, I guess their sense is to look the part, but I really wanted to do this. I was dedicated in doing this. So I want to say whatever I had to do to go through the motions of getting my grandchildren to live with me, they went ahead and found every way, every excuse in the book to make it seem like I did not have the proper healthy environment. And they gave over my, my grandchildren over to a complete stranger. From what I know, they did live in Texas. I do not know if they, they moved. They do not stay in contact with me. Um, during the court system, I identify as like, if it goes one way or the other, if I'm not able to get them now, I will continue to go, go for them. But while in the time being, if these people are going to be in my grandkids' lives, then at least stay in contact with me about their well-being yeah. and how they are. I would like to see pictures. Um, that was three years ago. And not one letter, not one picture. My grandchildren, um, I have a granddaughter and a grandson. And one of them is, I believe, six years old. And the other one is four. And the last time I got to hold them was when they were babies. So I am currently struggling with that as well. And it just infuriates me how a non-blood relative yes. uh -huh. has the audacity to take precedence over the grandmother yeah. um, is beyond me. So I am like everything that you're saying right now, I have, I am either I've gone through it or I am currently going through it. And I ran out of money to, to continue to go to court. Um, the court cases were located about 700 miles from where I reside. So I had to constantly have to drive there every time there was a court hearing. Even I even drove out there to even do like um, visitations and to enjoy just the weekend with them, at least anything that I could do. And I lost connection with them about three years ago. And nobody will follow up with me. No one has contacted me. This is ridiculous. And I don't think any person, any child should go through this. A lot of things that play the part is A, I am Afro-Latina. So our culture is, you know, something that I like to carry on with my grandchildren. They are not of Mexican or Black or Latin or Native American culture. Um, they do not understand the concepts of how culture and traditions are done in our family. Um, and I know for sure they are not respecting how I, to carry on that with my grandchildren in my absence. So there's a lot other than that takes heed other than um, the roof over the head and the food on the table and clothes on their backs. There's a culture 
there's tradition, there's to understand where we come from. My language, you know, they don't understand Spanish or they don't understand, you know, the history behind where they come from. That's being lost right now. And I know I've spoken to a lot of other indigenous women who have gone through that. And uh, it's, it's across the board. It's hitting at all homes. And I completely agree that it's, it's starting to trickle into other people's household and their culture and their living space for their children. And, and it's going to affect their children's children. It's if you don't stop it from where it's bleeding, we need to put a cork in that dam. It's horrific what da the damage it has done to our family and our foundation in America. If there was anything you'd like to share with the listeners that I might have missed or we did not discuss that you'd like to share as a closing? I just want to say I'll, I'll be praying for you because I can, I get it. A, a blood relative is always oh, should take precedence. And I remember just again, you know, a little short incident where my parents have been, we're Roman Catholic and my parents came 3000 miles for a really important celebration, the first communion of our daughter. And Neighbor was there, neighbor could attend the ceremony. My parents came in, we had to wait. And we fortunately could find a Denny's. We're sitting at a Denny's restaurant and we had to wait because mom had her friend and was at the ceremony. But those things, they hit home and they hit hard for people. And every family, blood relatives, it's my understanding, you should have a right to pass on your heritage, your tradition, and all the things that are a part of that family, because that's where they come from. And that's what they belong. And that's who they belong to. And it's blood. You know, they said blood is thicker than water. And that would be the phrase I would think. Courts need to recognize that blood is thicker than water. Very true. Thank you so much for again, for sharing your story. And I hope that this falls on uh, listeners' ears and uh, take an initiative and able to reach out to you and get that ball rolling to make the changes because they see the same fire and determination that you have presented here on this podcast, that they will also reach out to you and maybe make things work, make things go, move forward and for the better, for, the, for our future, for our children's future. Um, is there a way that someone could reach out to you if they are wanting to get to know more about your book and any additional information? Yep, sure. I appreciate that. Yeah, so kind of what we said, the theme is America Burning. And on Instagram, if you go to America Burning, yeah, please join there and keep updates there and what have you. So if I could try to leave it on a positive note, my prayer was that our daughter would be 18 and sane and just to show you how things can turn around. So I had her at home from the time that she was eight until she was 18. And turns out she was the school valedictorian and she went on to a very prestigious college, all of which I was trying to tell the court the whole time and said, look, just give me a chance here. Give me an opportunity. So there is success and hope and things can turn around. So whoever feels though they're down deep in the pits of depression, things can turn around and good will prevail because uh, I read the book of Revelation, you know, good wins in the end. It's coming. And yes, congratulations on her and her success, as well as you so determined enough that you were able to have your daughter back home with you and to see her grow and become a beautiful, successful woman in this world. She definitely needed that. And I'm glad that you were 
the parent that kept placing that determination on the system and it was finally in your favor. So yeah, I'm glad that you were able to share that with me. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Burning America, Instagram, you want more updates, but hang in there. Keep fighting. They're your kids, mm-hmm. your flesh and blood. They're yours. They belong to you no matter what anybody else says. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Well, you have a wonderful rest of the Sunday and thank you so much for holding out on this podcast. God bless. And thank you for your time. Much obliged. You're very welcome. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Noise Palooza Zion podcast. And if you enjoy listening to my podcast, please don't hesitate to give me a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. Also wanted to give a shout out and thank you so much to all my guests, past, present, and future. And stay tuned for the next upcoming episode on Fridays.